0: Hey, welcome to My Basement, everybody. I have a fantastic guest on the show today, somebody that I've been wanting to sit down with for a very long time, and uh, lo and behold, the pandemic has allowed us to Zoom conference and have a conversation today, which uh, is very exciting. Gary Witta is a master of many things. You may know him from, well, kind of funny games. You may know him from Animal Talking, his new talk show. You may know him as uh, one of the co-creators of Rogue One, uh, co-screenwriters on that incredible Star Wars movie. Uh, He's worked on Walking Dead. The Book of Eli is his work as well. I mean, the list is ridiculous. This is a man that has floated in between video games and comic books and podcasts and movies and television shows. Gary Whitta joins me today. How are you doing, Gary? I'm good, thank you. What a, that's a very auspicious introduction that you just gave me. And I just wanna be clear, like I, you're, you're
1: not getting me for this interview just because I don't have anything better to do because of the pandemic. Like I don't have anything better to do most of the time. So I'm, I'm happy, <laughs> pandemic or no pandemic, I'm happy to be here with you today.
0: Well, we uh, we relaunched the podcast a few weeks ago and, uh, well, a couple weeks ago, and I, I've been trying to think of who do I really want to sit down with? Who do I want to talk with and have a really nice, you know, deep conversation about all the stuff that's going on uh, in the geeky world, all the games and, you know, comics and movies and all that stuff. And you're the, one of the first people that came up on the list. Um, your career is fascinating. Uh, I think you have... You have a dream kind of life because you're able to float from the outside. And we'll get into it in a second here because I, I know not everything is rosy and dreamy all the time. But from the outside, it's like what you imagine you are able to create, you go off and do it. And I think sometimes, like with animal talking, it's almost like... You fall into it a little bit is is that something that you would say is kind of correct with that? I mean
1: with animal talking not just a little bit but a lot a hundred percent I mean that was completely accidental the the success that the show Has enjoyed where it's kind of gone viral that all happened completely by accident and completely organically and I think that's that's really the only way that true Virality ever really happens anyone who sets out to create viral content is probably not going to be successful like the really viral stuff is the stuff that just kind of happens organically by accident and you kind of fall ass backwards into it. I certainly fell ass backwards into animal talking. I was just playing Animal Crossing on my Twitch channel. You know, people were watching me kind of goof around in my basement. And I started on this project, not even to create a talk show, but just to kind of replicate a talk show set. Like, could I make my basement look like the set of The Tonight Show? And we were able to put together a set with a a background and plants and a desk and a couch and a band area and the whole thing that looked so cool and it looked so much like a real talk show that the people in my Twitch channel were kind of saying to me, oh, you should actually do it. You should do a talk show. And so I called up my friend, uh, Naomi Kyle, who's a very popular, you know, YouTuber and actress, kind of internet host personality. I said, do you want to like play dress up and like, goof? like put on a dress I'll put on a suit, come over to my island and we'll like, we'll play talk show. Like, you know, I, I understand you brought a clip. Tell me about your new book and just do all the cheesy talk show stuff. And we kind of did it as a goof. But people enjoyed it so much, and I enjoyed doing it so much. I kind of fell right into that kind of, you know, the guy behind the desk with the note cards and the coffee mug and the whole thing. It was just so much fun to kind of goof around in that context uh, that we did another episode and another episode. And the next thing you know, it kind of took off. We we we're on the front page of Twitch. Now we've got, you know, bigger and bigger celebrity guests that want to come on the show. We do live music. We do stand-up comedy. We do everything that the real – I say the real. We are a real talk show. We do everything that the established – talk shows do. And in fact, right now we're doing more than they can do. Jimmy Fallon, Jimmy Kimmel, Colbert, Conan, James Corden. All of those guys are stuck in their basement because they yeah. can't, their sets aren't open. The production crews have all been shut down. They are trying to do some version of their talk show from basically their brim cupboard. Animal Talking is weirdly the only talk show out there right now that actually looks like one with a desk and a couch and a band and lights and you know, <laughs> all, the, all of the set dressing that you would expect because we don't live in the real world. We live and, in the virtual world.
0: And exterior we amazing, locations.
1: You yeah, can get yeah. We, we, we have this amazing ability to bring guests together from all over the world. We had a show the other day. I'm sitting on the couch. I'm sitting behind the, the desk. My band leader, Adam, is over there by the band area and I've got two guests on the couch and we're all in the same virtual space. But in reality, I'm here in San Francisco, Adam's in Canada, and the two guests were re- re- respectively in New York City and Montpellier, France. So that's kind of the beauty of the metaverse of this, where everyone's kind of migrating to these virtual spaces now more than ever because of the pandemic. We're, we're desperate for human connection in any way that we can get it because we can't get it in the real world right now. And the talk show is just one of like thousands of cool ways that I think people have um, uh, engineered in order to kind of create uh, or recreate, you know, social interaction in the in the virtual world.
0: Well, I know that the game itself, just playing the game, is a uh, it, it's a it's a joy. It's an amazing game, and it couldn't have come out at a better time. But it's also a tremendous time suck. You just get lost in it for hours and hours, whether you want to or not. So, and it's also kind of a job when you're playing the game. You also have so many chores and things that you have to do. And it sounds like you were doing that. Maybe you maxed out a lot of the uh, the bells that you wanted to earn. And then you basically have turned it into a real job. Like, I know how much time it takes to chase people down and get them to come to your show and to figure out all of the, uh, you know, the behind the scenes stuff on streaming this stuff effortlessly is this pretty much what you're working on now is this your full-time gig right now you know
1: the the the, the month of may where the show blew up um got a little bit out of control because it, it became way too successful way too quickly it kind of caught me by surprise i got carried away a little bit with the success of it and we were doing three shows a week all through the month of may that basically killed me yeah um and you know really did get in the way of my actual job we we're on hiatus this week we're back next week uh, june 1st with season 2 and we're just doing one show a week, that's much more manageable and allows us to put more time and effort into each individual show. Because you're right, it is a lot of work. Again, we do everything that the Tonight Show does, except we don't have a staff or a budget. I have, you know, note cards, we do pre-interviews, we do sound checks. Uh, Every guest, we have to, you know, get them all set up on Discord and make sure we're getting good audio from them. We have to bring their character over to the island and make sure that, you know, all the connectivity stuff is working well. Um, you know, I have lighting and camera cues during the show, music and animation—all this stuff that we've thrown together very quickly. Um, it's been ama- One of the one of the most amazing and, and gratifying things about it is like learning and learning basically an completely new set of skills. You know how yeah. essentially how to put on a talk show like in a crash course. We have kind of been building the airplane while it's in the air, um, and you see every mistake that that we make. You know, on a typical talk show, you would probably do like a dozen or so. Uh, dummy uh, episodes you know just for rehearsal that you know only test audiences would see and never get broadcast we broadcast all of our test episodes like every single (laughs) one as we were making mistakes you kind of saw it live on air and I think that's been been kind of the the charm um, but you're right. I mean, it has kind of, over, it's overtaken my real life and it's overtaken my animal crossing life. I've spent so much time on the talk show set down in my virtual basement that when I finally came up for air at the end of season one, my Island was just in a complete disaster mess. You know, like my, all my villagers didn't want to talk to me because I've been ignoring them. There were weeds growing. Uh, I hadn't, I hadn't cultivated any fruit or dug up my money trees in a long time. The Island basically was in a total, uh, mess and I'm just now starting to get back. Uh, on top of that but you're right the game the game came out at exactly the right time it's interesting the game was actually delayed it was supposed to come out pre-pandemic and then when it, but with the with the revised release date it ended up coming up uh coming out just at the time that everybody needed it when yeah. when the game first came out we were a couple of weeks into the lockdown i have a wife and a seven-year-old daughter here at home we all love each other dearly but you know what it's like you can get on each other's nerves you know you start to get, yep. like, when when you're in such close proximity for such a long time and we were starting to feel a little bit of that tension in the house from being cooped up with one another all, all day long. When the game came into into the house, um, the mood in the household just lifted instantly because we yep. had this place to go to. And like you said, that's what I love. It's got the game's got this kind of Jimmy Buffett vibe to it, right? You don't have to do anything. You yeah. can sit back. You can relax. You can make maybe you you pick fruit today. Maybe maybe you can wait until tomorrow. Like the game isn't. There's no hurried pace to the game. There's no challenge as such. It's not. Um, you know, forcing you to do anything. You can play the game at your own pace, in your own style. Uh, and I think people are really responding to that. There's something very meditative and something very th- therapeutic, even in just the monotony of doing your daily chores, chopping wood um, and, you know, picking fruit and talking to your villagers. People kind of settle into an Animal Crossing routine. And I, and I think they genuinely find that very therapeutic. I'd actually be fascinated to see, like a psychological or a medical study on like how a game like Animal Crossing help relieve stress and anxiety during stressful times because i really i really think that's that's a genuine effect that it's been having on the lives of a lot of people
0: well you feel like you're actually completing things you actually have uh, objectives and goals that you set within your game world and and it feels like there are accomplishments being made yeah you have been a a student of um popular culture uh you know uh, largely coming out of north america you started in england and you started in the magazine business writing for video game magazines, but you've loved games and you've loved films, and do you think all of that is part and parcel with you getting to work on the projects that you get to work on? Is is your, your ability to retain that information that you probably, you know, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but I would assume that you were a voracious reader of things like Starlog back in the 80s, And you would consume everything about Star Wars and all that, you know, all the stuff that's going on in video games. Did all of that, you know, guide you and help you to sit down in in, uh, meetings with producers and studios and and, uh, different companies um, and give you the comfort and the ammunition to kind of close the deal and start working on the projects that you've been able to do?
1: Yeah, kind of. I mean, I think like the authenticity that I have as a nerd or a geek or whatever, however you want to label it, is is a big part of, you know, why I'm able to be successful in the, in, in my chosen field. You're right. When I was a kid, I, I read and watched and played everything. I grew up on video games. I grew up on a lot of America. In the UK, you grew up on a lot of American culture. as pretty much everyone in the world does. You know, we all kind of export American culture all over the world. Sure. Um, and... Uh, well, yeah, I know I one of
0: your big projects that you would love to see happen, and I would love to see it too, is, uh, you know, a remake of Columbo. And, and that, that comes from somebody that's been paying attention to pop culture for a long time.
1: Yeah, and I grew up on all of these things, you know, Star Wars, Star Trek, Battlestar, Galactica, Knight Rider, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Time Bandits. Like, I watched and read and played all of these things, you know, all the old Infocom video games. And yeah, I, re- yeah, I read Starlog. Yeah, I read Fangoria. Fangoria was my favorite magazine when I was a kid. I used to love awesome. all of that stuff. And yeah. so that's always been kind of deeply ingrained in what I do. Um, and, it's, and it's led me into kind of both of the careers that I've had, first as a video game journalist and now as a screenwriter. And I got it's very gratifying to see it all finally paying off because I got pushed around a lot when I was a kid for being a nerd. Back in the 80s when I was a nerd and talking about Star Trek and Star Wars and Battlestar Galactica and, and all this kind of, Blake 7, all this kind of stuff, that wasn't cool. And I got pushed around and bullied and kind of beat up at school for being a nerd and a geek. You know, many, many of us did. Um, I, I think there's still a little bit of that stigma attached. But finally now, now that being nerdy is like a multi-billion dollar business, um, you know, the, kind of the geeks have finally inherited – the Earth, and so all of all of that knowledge and everything that I did to kind of pay my dues as a nerd, as a geek, back in the day, now has, has stands me in very good stead because that is a particular skill set and the ability to kind of know what authentically resonates with people like me who grew up with that stuff. You know, because real nerds, real geeks, people in our world, they can smell artifice a mile off. If, if it's not coming from an authentic place, we we just know instantly. And yeah. so the kind of authenticity that. People like me can bring to a project, and like know exactly why, uh, you know, something in the in the realm of sci-fi fantasy like speaks to a certain audience. Um, I, I'm able to bring a lot of myself and a lot of my own kind of authenticity, integrity, whatever you want to call it. Uh, to that project. And yeah, that's, I mean, that, that helps me with Star Wars. It's helped me with everything I've worked on in that space.
0: You know, and what's so funny, when I when I was pitching uh, the show in the 90s, I used a lot of that sort of geek popular culture, quote unquote, geek popular culture, um, as sort of the reference point saying that this stuff just isn't discussed enough in talk shows and entertainment shows. Like they'll just do cursory flyovers. But it's the most meaningful it isn't, you know, it's mainstream. It's not just a, you know, just a few people that like this stuff. These are the most powerful media properties that humans have created. Star Wars and Star Trek and the superheroes and that. And that has definitely become truth as a lot of uh, voracious fans of these kinds of properties have grown up and and sort of been... Uh, given the keys to the kingdom a little bit. and Yeah,
1: and, and and just like anything in Hollywood and show business and mainstream popular culture, it's a numbers game. You know, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, the resurgence of Star Wars, Star Trek coming back, the DC Universe, all of these things are kind of having these big resurgences right now, and they're making billions and billions of dollars, and Hollywood can't ignore that. So whether they like it or not, they have they have to cater to that market. If you go look yeah. at... Um, you go to like a box office website and look at like the 50 most profitable, you know, films of the last 50 years. They're almost all science fiction and genre stuff. And so, yeah, yeah that's, that, that's, that's always been a big part of the business. It's, it's bigger now, certainly, than ever.
0: It seems reductive to say genre stuff, though, doesn't it? When that is what we all want to see. We all, especially if we're going to the theater and now it's going to become... Uh, even more precarious to go to the theater. We're going to want to go and be completely floored by genre stuff, but that seems so small compared to how big these, uh, you know, these cinematic dreams actually end up being, doesn't it? It, Yeah.
1: And it it sucks right now that none of us can go to the cinema because we all want that escapism. I think that when the lockdown is finally over in a real and safe way and people can go back to the theaters, the theaters are going to be packed. Because people are desperate for that, they, you know, not not just the, the experience of, of going to see a movie, but the experience of socializing with you know others uh, like us, you know, to congregate yeah. and to go to con- you, know, no, you know to go back to Comic Con and PAX and those kind of conventions. We all yes. we all want to obviously get back to that as soon as possible. But yeah, I mean, even if it's just staying at home and watching Netflix, what we really want right now, and this is why I think the talk show has been so successful, and a lot of the projects that have kind of sprung up, you know, these kind of green shoots of creativity that we've seen springing up through the pandemic. Is that people desperately want this escapism? Like they want to. We we see the news every day. We should all pay attention to the news. I watch the news every day. But there comes a point where you need, for your own mental health, you got to turn it off and and escape into something else. And so, whether it's creating escapist entertainment or consuming escapist entertainment, I like to do both. That is, I think, an essential part of our kind of psychological makeup and our and our need for kind of mental and emotional self-care is to, you know, whether it's watching Rick and Morty or Star Trek or, uh, you know, Animal Talk and whatever it is that's out there, people desperately need to forget their troubles, even for a short time. And that's what our business has always done. It's just, it's it's more urgent now than ever.
0: I've really enjoyed stuff like the Russo brothers kind of pointing to YouTube reaction videos of people seeing key moments in Endgame, you know, and how cathartic things like that can be. Was there you know a particular story or a show or a movie or a game that um is part of your origin story was the it was the thing that you went oh my god I'm doing that I'm I'm Every- not just going to consume it I'm going to do that
1: Every every filmmaker in my generation, I was born. I, I, I'm a child of the of the early 70s, and and every filmmaker in my generation would say Star Wars. You know, they'll sure. say, "Oh, the first time that the Star Destroyer you know, came overhead in the opening shot of Star Wars, that was the moment I needed. I, I knew I wanted to be a filmmaker." Uh, with me, it came a little bit later. It came it came in Return of the Jedi, and it's mm. the, it's the attack on the second Death Star when you know, the millennium falcon and and wedge they're kind of skimming over the surface of the death star and then they do that barrel roll and suddenly they're inside the death star i remember i was 11 years old but i still very vividly remember this moment thinking whatever it is that i'm that this movie is making me feel right now which is this sense of awe and wonder and excitement and stakes and everything's happening all at once and this is just mind-blowing like i whatever this movie is doing to me right now, emotionally, <laughs> I want to create that for other people. And it was very specifically that moment that I knew that this is what I wanted to do with my life. And then 30 something years later, I got to go to the Skywalker ranch archives and that aperture on the death star surface that, that Lando Barrow rolls the Falcon into that original model was there. Yeah. And I got to touch it. And I had this moment. I was like, that's the, that this, this is the, this is the actual prop from that specific kind of, you know, epiphany moment where I knew that this is why, what did I want what I wanted to do with my life. And now that journey has brought me here, kind of to where it all began with the original model that was in that shot. And it was really emotionally overwhelming. That's amazing. It was really, it was really I, something. You're,
0: you're giving me chills. And, and uh, I have similar kinds of stories about that through video games, because the, you know through our friends at LucasArts, a lot of the mutual, we've been able to go and visit you know, developers there and go into the archives. And it is truly incredible. Star Wars set me on my path too. Um, but let's get to making star wars and you've seen behind the curtain in a, a million different ways you were on you know you co-created rogue one first of all how did that happen how, how were you brought on board and and how did you get to um create a fantastic film by the way and i've said this many times on twitter and and you know directly added you but uh Every time I see that movie, I like it more i just I, I liked it to begin with, and I love it now, and every time I see it i I just think it's a wonderful, wonderful film it's a total love letter to the whole star wars yeah and and, and it was,
1: certainly was intended to be so and myself and Gareth and everyone who worked on the movie you know were, were big fans and wanted to kind of pay tribute to the original film. Um, I can tell you like i mean the like, the super duper origin of it. I remember exactly where I was when I first heard. That Star Wars was coming back. Um, that Disney had bought Lucasfilm, and uh, you know they were going to make episodes Seven, Eight, and Nine. This was before yeah. JJ or any of it, but the initial announcement was just that Disney has bought Lucasfilm from George for like four billion dollars, and they're going to make the next chapter in the in the Skywalker saga. Yes. And I was sta- I was standing in line at a Popeyes Fried Chicken waiting for my chicken order, and I was on my phone, and I instantly went from my the news app that I was on where I saw the news to my phone, and I called my agent and said look, I know that you're getting a lot of calls right this minute, but like you've <laughs> got to throw my hat in the ring because, oh, my God. oh my, God. And my agent was like, yeah, you and everyone else, like the phones are ringing off the hook over here. Like every writer in town, every yeah. director in town obviously wanted a piece of that action. And I never, I said, look, the 12-year-old boy in me is never going to give me any peace unless I at least try. But I never expected anything to come of it. And then what happened was after that, I worked on a movie, the poster is over there right behind me called After Earth. Yeah. Uh, I co-wrote with M. Night Shyamalan, who also directed it. Will Smith was in that movie. And the movie just fell on its face. Like, you know, yeah. it graded at the box office. It got terrible, terrible reviews. And I remember thinking for a while, hey, maybe maybe I'm done. Maybe I'll go back to video games. I don't know if my career could even survive. Taking a hit like this because the movie was really really viciously attacked i know
0: uh, Un- got- unfairly so there's some cool stuff in that film for there's sure There's some
1: cool stuff in it and i think there were reasons why the movie got like more of a, a kicking than maybe oh yeah it deserved. M- Night, that Shyamalan, a- everybody would yeah save- totally and, and yeah. will and jaden and the whole thing i'll save yes. it for another day yes. yeah. um but yeah the, the the movie got a really really hard time and it was unequivocally a commercial and a critical failure and my name's right there on the movie and i remember thinking oh, maybe i'm done and yeah. i had a really really desperate sad weekend i remember um uh, some of our best friends they they didn't call us but I can, I can imagine that they were having the conversation like should we do something like carrie must be really bummed out right now <laughs> and they and they kind of they, they i remember they knocked on my door and ran away and they left <laughs> a box of crispy cream donuts
0: oh wow
1: and I remember there was really, it was a really sweet gesture and they were good donuts but they tasted like pity and I was like oh my god these <laughs> pity donuts were you crying and eating those donuts I wasn't and I, but I was like definitely and Kevin Smith talks about this as well Kevin Smith talked about after I think it was Jersey Girl that came out and it yeah. got critically savaged and he just went and locked himself in a dark room like all weekend like basically like in a fetal ball because it's really agonizing
0: oh dude I, mean, I just had the uh, the director of the Playmobile movie the animated movie oh my when, god yeah when, and it 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 uh, totally bombed. He's an amazing guy. He's worked yeah. at Disney forever. Yeah, and he was so hyped and pumped. And then the movie bombed so it's like the worst yeah. box office. and, any, I, and he, it's you just your heart breaks, man. And
1: and I and I and I gotta tell you, you know, ever since I swear because I used to be a critic. Ever since I switched onto the other side of the fence as a creator, right. as I have been for the last twenty years now, I'm much, 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 much more careful in my criticism of other people's creative work. Like if you follow sure. my Twitter, I mouth off about a lot of subjects, but I never you'll never ever ever hear me express a negative opinion about a movie or a television show. A right. because we all live in glass houses and B because I know how much it hurts for creators to hear that stuff. Like yeah. no, 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 very, uh, nobody that I know of or I've ever worked in is cynical about this stuff. Even even when stuff doesn't work out, like the Playmobil movie or like After Earth or the Book of Henry. I had Colin Trevorrow on my show uh, just recently talking about you know, how that movie was very poorly received. Yeah. Everybody is trying their best to put their best work out there and it's sincere and they, they desperately want to entertain you. They want to do their best work. And when something doesn't work, it's really heartbreaking and when people yep. pile on, and, they, and this, is, this is why I can't watch these everything wrong with type YouTube videos where there's all these armchair critics who I think know. they can do better and, yep. they'll, and they'll snark and point out all the mistakes and, and, and they'll say, well, if you'd have just done it this way, if you're so smart,
0: go, go and do it. it. I guarantee, yes. you, there's, I guarantee I know. you
1: there's more money in it if you can figure out how to crack it. Uh, you'll make a lot more money making movies than you will criticizing them.
0: Well, Um, you know, I learned something on that too, right? Because when I started EP, it was all just a, you know, a singular dream and I'd be cracking off my reviews and I'd write them. And when I read them now, they're just so, uh, they're from a place, not of nastiness, but of like real... um, Well, you know, real judgment, you know, 20-something judgment, which is fine. Yeah. But but when you get to meet people and you see that they work really hard, even if it sucks, there's still something to be learned even as a player from that stuff. Of course. So I try to do my reviews since then. And, of course, since we grew a show and I worked with lots of people and I know how hard it is to make anything – I try to keep all of that in mind all the time, and so people always pick up on that when I when I uh, yeah when I post and, my reviews. And,
1: and I want to be completely clear: I'm not anti-critic at all. I used to be a critic for many yeah. years. That's why I think yeah. I, I I have a valid you know in my, my opinion carries some weight on this because I was a I've been on both sides of the equation professionally as a, as a critic and then later as a creator whose work is getting uh, criticized. I think criticism is a is a is a totally valid and very worthwhile. Um, thing you know, a really yes. good, really good criticism of film, of art, of literature can help us understand those things better. I've I've read reviews of things that after I read it, I understood the movie better, and it sure. helped me develop a better appreciation from it. Good criticism, um, good analysis, good critiquing can do that. The problem that I have, and it's and only shown up in the age of the internet, is the snarky, almost yep. like gleefully kind of like sticking the boot into something that, that didn't work just just for the fun of it. Like that to me, I don't have any time for. But to get back to your question about Star Wars, after, after Earth failed, I thought I was done in this business. But then, you know, you never know what's around the corner. The very next call I got was from Lucasfilm and they said, would you like to come in and talk to us? Yeah. Um... And I had a very nice general meeting here in San Francisco at the, the Lucasfilm uh, complex, which is, which is here in the city. Um, and I met with some people from their story group. This, again, this is before JJ was announced. This is all super early. Nobody, nobody knew what episode seven was going to be. I assumed that, of course, they were going to be, you know, papering the wall with everything. Video games, t-shirts, comic books, breakfast cereal, uh, you know, TV series, graphic novels, movies, of course, all kinds of things. Um, you know, they just spent $4 billion on Star Wars. They're going to exploit it, right? They're going to make everything. So I thought maybe they were there to talk, they, they were, I was there for them to talk to me about a video game because that's part of my background. Comic book, I've done comic books. I never imagined that as a screenwriter, they would have thought of me, because every, again, every A-list writer in town would, would, yeah. would do that, just that they could take their pick of yep. talent. That's one of the luxuries that you have when you work on Star Wars, you can take your pick of talent because everybody wants to be a part of that that universe. Um, and they talked to me in this very general way. Um, they I just I, they asked me to talk to them about my own personal relationship with Star Wars. I told them about that eleven, you know, that, that moment when I was eleven when I saw them, you know, roll into the Millennium into the into the Death Star, and that's when I wanted to be a filmmaker. I told them about how I would take when I was a kid my old Han Solo action figures and put them in the ice cube tray and freeze him in carbonite <laughs> in the freezer, and then kind of thaw him out under the warm tap, um, and all just all my little kind of you know bespoke stories, anecdotes about why I love Star Wars. And they didn't tell me anything. They played their cards very close to their chest. Okay, well, thanks for coming in. And I walked out having no idea what the meeting was, other than like being the most general of general meetings. And then about a couple of weeks later, they sent me this document to look at. They said, take a look at this and let me know, let us know if you'd be interested in writing this project. Uh, And I opened it and it was this thing called Destroyer of Worlds. And it was a one page or two page outline that John Knoll had written. Yep. Um, and I and, and, and I called them back. I swear this is true I called them back and said I know you guys are very conscious about security I, I should tell I should probably tell you you've sent me the wrong document because there's no way this is for me This is for a feat live-action feature film. And oh, they're wow. like, yeah, yeah What do you think rebels death star plans? I was like, oh my god, seriously, like this actually is for me And of course, I loved the idea immediately um, I developed some ideas I had to go back and pitch to John Knoll when they brought Gareth Edwards on to direct. I had to talk to him all the way up to like Kathy Kennedy and, you know, Alan Horn and the people at the top of Disney. The whole process took several months to develop the property and, and get the green light from Disney at the highest levels. Uh, but, then, but then they said, OK, you're good. Go, go do it. And Gareth and I sat in an office in San Francisco for about six months, you know, preparing developing the story and i wrote the first draft of the script chris whites came on as a screenwriter after me and then uh, tony gilray came on on the back end of the movie um so you know i people always say to me like yo rogue one's so great thank you and all this kind of stuff and i'm always very clear to point out that i was really just a very small part of you know a massive yeah you know, every movie is a massive massive collaboration but on well, you helped
0: like, to you helped to steal the death star plants you i said helped it to- you I set it in motion.
1: I know, and I actually got to hold the real Death Star plans in my hands at one point when I was on that set, and that was another surreal moment. But I just want to be totally clear: like, you know, when you make big movies like this, um, it's often, uh, you know, a big collaborative process, even in the even in the writing stage. And I oh, it's an I, army. I kind of think of it like a like a relay race. You know, John wrote the initial idea for the story kind of passes the baton on to me. I developed the story much more vividly and then wrote the first draft of the script. Then Chris came on and, and rewrote the script and made it even better. And then Tony came on at the end and, and made his contribution as well. And so everyone, you know, it's a big, big group contribution. I am you know, given the, the size and the enormity of what Star Wars is and the fact that Rogue One has been so well received uh, by the fans. People seem to think that I, I, I keep my opinions to myself, but most people seem to think it's one of the better movies of the new generation, yes. um, that's incredibly flattering to me uh, to have been even a small part of, of the creative machine that made that movie.
0: Well, you, you got behind the curtain with Star Wars. I'm sure that you covered lots of uh, Lucas Games over the years as, uh, as a PC game editor and player, uh, but you got to work with people sort of guiding where Star Wars was going and how much of your love for star wars how did it change did it did it uh, affect it in a just tell tell me how it changed for you? Do you still have that same love and and adoration for Star Wars that got you into this business to begin with
1: yeah I do, but it's changed a little bit because you can't be behind the machine and 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 then emerge the other side in in some way not changed by it and but yeah. that, i mean that but that that that's true for me generally as a filmmaker like, when, yeah. like because i'm so um, uh, day-to-day in the business of, of crafting story and making films that when I watch a movie now, I can't help but like see the matrix a little bit in, in the sense of like, I, I I see a scene, I'm like, I, I know why they made that creative choice. Or I can see where the studio note was exactly there. Like that, <laughs> like some some character says something really obvious. And I'm like, there's a, there was a note there from the studio to like, please clarify this so the, the audience will understand. So I, I kind of, <laughs> once you know how the sausage is made, you can't, unsee it when you watch a movie yeah. um, and that's a little bit true of star wars as well just, just because like the the only price that i paid in real terms i think for being um part of the star wars universe is it takes a teeny tiny little bit of the magic out of it because like again once the magician shows you how he how how he does his tricks that can't help but take a little bit of the magic out of it but that's yeah. a price that i obviously I, of course i'm willing to make that faustian bargain anytime still a big star wars fan i still love star wars uh, but yeah, you, can, you you can't not work in that business for five years as I did because I worked on the movie and then on Star Wars Rebels and I did Star Wars books and comics as well and not you know have that change your outlook on Star Wars a little bit because you worked inside the machine for yeah. such a long time. But I but I still do love Star Wars and I le- and I learned so much from some of the smartest people um in the star wars world like like john null like dave Filoni, the people that are still kind of carrying the torch for star wars at this point and to be able to collaborate with them and learn from them and kind of understand like the true dna of star wars as they understand it was you know just an incredible privilege for me
0: and we're at kind of this uh, very exciting kind of pivot point now with star wars mandalorian kick butt it's an incredible show and the second season is coming and and uh uh, the Skywalker saga closed off and now we're kind of in that dream space right now, about where we go from here, um, there's also the Cassian Andor show. Are are you going to be involved in that? Or are you coming back to do anything with that one? No,
1: I have nothing to do with the Rogue One show. They never asked me. That's their prerogative. Again, I think that they're, they're, they're constantly, there's a lot of turnover in that world. They're constantly looking for like new voices, new filmmakers. I'm very happy with the contribution that I made. I mean, I, and, and they were happy enough with me on Rogue One that they asked me to stick around on Star Wars Rebels. I did The Last Jedi graphic novel adaptation. I worked on a couple of Star Wars books. I'm very, very... You know, like my, my cup run, I couldn't ask for more in terms of what Lucasfilm, you know, invited me to be a part of in terms of the for length sure. and breadth of scope of it. But they're, all, they're always looking for new voices, for new people to come along and like add their, uh, you know, piece to the, to the creative picture. So I, w- I wish them the best of luck with everything that they're doing going forward. I'm fascinated to see it again, just purely as a fan. And you're right, like all, a lot of these big franchises now have now reached these inflection points, right? The Skywalker saga is yeah. over. So they yeah. have to find a way to move forward with the cinematic storytelling um, you know, without having that uh, foundation to stand on. They have to create something new. Um, yeah. The Marvel Cinematic Universe kind of came to a natural end. You know, at the end of Infinity War or Endgame, you know, that, was, that felt like a natural end. The movies are still going, but, they, but, it, but, they, but it's almost like a new start for them because the, at the end of this epic story kind of came to a natural um, conclusion. So you know, I and think if you, DC think as like, well,
0: DC tried this whole thing, and and uh, now we're getting the Snyder cut. What's your thought on the on the Snyder cut?
1: I you know I have very mixed feelings about it. I'm not necessarily a huge fan of like fan pressure leading to studios to make big creative decisions. I think yeah. you can um, you can that can go sideways. I had a friend who worked on Lost. Uh, and he told me once that he said, if you, he said, having worked on last, he said, I can, I can track I can correlate exactly the moment where the show started to go kind of downhill creatively when to the moment when the writers in the writer's room started reading the message boards. Right. And, 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 and it gets inside your head. Oh, people don't like this. People don't like that. Like you start second guessing yourself. And if you yep. let, if you let that fan input become too part of your own, creative equation, or I think all you can do in terms of like creative integrity, creative honesty, is create what you want, what you want to see, and yeah. hope that there are enough people out there that believe in you, or, believe, yeah, or, or, or agree with you. But if, if, that, if you're trying to, or oh, maybe they'd like this, maybe they're like that, that to me does not feel like it's coming from a creatively honest plays.
0: No, you're creating by algorithm in a way, right? Which is sort of what's happening with video games, right? There's yeah. so many live service games. And I know that you come from an era, as I do, where you, you buy a game and you get the whole game. And now we have a lot of games that are kind of constantly changing and, and uh, playing to the whims of the audience out there. Sometimes it's great, but sometimes it can be um, not art.
1: Yeah. And it's, and, and it's not just the internet. Hollywood's always been this way. Oh, the audience likes this. Let's do more of that. The audience yeah. didn't like that. Let's do less of it. The problem is that Hollywood often learns exactly the wrong rules from success and failure. They often misinterpret why something was popular or sure. why something was unpopular. Um, and I wish they would do a better job of like figuring out like, you know, why something worked or didn't work in, 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 in trying to replicate uh, that success. I, I I'll, I'll I've got HBO Max. I'll watch the Snyder Cut when it comes out I'm curious to see how different it is from the original version um, I just I I would prefer it if, if if, studios made these decisions because they genuinely felt like it was a good thing to do and not because a lot of angry people on The internet were shouting at them.
0: I know that you're a big PC gaming aficionado clearly do you spend and you're, you obviously like the nintendo switch these days do you spend a lot of time with uh, xbox and playstation do you, do you sort of dive into all video games yeah i
1: still play all the games i got the playstation and the xbox and the switch all hooked up to the capture station here i got my my uh, my pc under the desk here i still love to play the games right now and uh, the game i'm currently really enjoying is minecraft dungeons i'm playing that with my family my i play kid, that with my uh, daughter my daughter yep. loves Minecraft, and so I, I'm not a big fan of Minecraft itself. I, I love what she's able to do with it in terms of creativity. It's amazing. It's just not something I would play. But Minecraft Dungeons is like a perfect game to bring us together because it's the Minecraft universe that she knows. She's like, yep. Oh, there's an enderman. He's dangerous. Like She knows from Minecraft like, what the bad bad guys, what the baddies are. Um, and I like Dungeon Crawlers. I like Diablo. And the idea of like a super accessible, family-friendly Diablo, okay, credit to Microsoft. It's a brilliant way to-, to, to um, Oh, it's to so defend. smart the Minecraft brand into into another space. I think that game's gonna be a big hit.
0: I think it's just the beginning for that game too. I think it's gonna be huge, but um, Xbox announced today that uh, uh, Xbox Series X is gonna be the most backwards compatible out of all the machines ever um what what are your thoughts on that is that an important uh, for me i'm i'm freaking out about that i'm super excited but i i want to hear what your thoughts are on i that, i I,
1: I i personally like that a lot i love to play the old games i just recently one of my all-time favorite games is ssx3 on yep. the xbox 360 um there's a there's a remastered 4k version of that, that you can get for like five bucks on the xbox one store right now it's fantastic i i, I love i love being able to go back and like my dream, my dream is NBA Street Volume Two. If we can bring that back, oh my God, I what know. a game! What a game that was. So I love to revisit these old games. You don't always want to have all the old hardware sitting. I know a lot of a lot of geeks like to have all the original hardware sitting around and hooked up to different CRT TVs and stuff like that, and that's cool. Not all of us yeah, can can do that. So yeah, I think the more the, the more backward compatibility, the better. I think Xbox has been leading the charge on this, and good for them. I wish, I hope that I, you know, when Sony announces you know more of its stuff i hope that they take a cue from that and then and, and, and that the playstation platform will become more backward compatible and forward compatible too i love what xbox is doing with smart delivery and you, know, you buy a game on xbox one now when the series x version comes out you'll just upgrade to that if you if you have a series x and they won't make you buy the game twice so i think you know break, breaking down those barriers between the different iterations of a particular platform whether it be xbox or or, uh, or PlayStation, I think it's great. I would love to get to a point where I could just pick up any Xbox disc all the way back to the original you know, Xbox, um, stick it in any, any, and it's just gonna work. You know, I think, I think cool, we are getting you know. closer to that every day.
0: We really are, it's insane. The other news that's starting to, well, it's, it's all conjecture right now, but Famitsu may be revealing that there's new Sega hardware next week. And there's speculation that uh, uh, it could be an announcement that Xbox is buying Sega, which is huge. Uh, And then I thought if they're going to play with backwards compatibility and they're going to say it's the most backwards compatible machine ever, what if you could throw in old Sega discs? into an Xbox One I mean, Series if, X when they if,
1: play. If, I mean, you know, the, these systems are now so powerful that you can, in fact, build entire virtual machines inside of them, right? So yeah. that, that's how they do a lot of this emulation. So the idea for, I mean, I'm just hearing this now, but like immediately, I, I'm like you, thinking of all the possibilities. If I could Imagine if, a, if you could throw a Dreamcast into an Xbox. I could throw a Dreamcast Crazy Taxi into my Series X and just play it. That would be so huge. Oh my God, that would be the yeah. best. I, I would know. love that. I
0: would love all right. that. I knew there would be so many great things for us to talk about. Um, one of the things that's coming up very soon, it's like a week or two away, is uh, the issue that you work with, uh, with the special Joker issue that you and Greg Miller have crafted a story oh, yeah. for. When, when is that coming out?
1: That should have been out weeks ago, but the, but the pandemic, of course,
0: pushed everything back. <laughs> yes. all the comic Dates have, have no covers. meaning anymore.
1: Yeah, so I'm really, really excited about that. Joker, 80th anniversary, 100 page, super spectacular is the very mouthful Name That's of awesome. the whole thing. It's out on June 9th. Um, and basically 2020 is the, 20th, is the 80th anniversary of the Joker. Joker cool. obviously is very hot right now because there was the big hit movie with YP mm-hmm. Phoenix. Everyone's talking about the Joker again. And it's his 80th birthday. And so, what, and DC does this many, they've done this with Batman, they've done it with Robin, they've done it with Wonder Woman. When, they, when a character reaches like a certain big anniversary and they're all kind of in their 80th, you know, kind of milestone, um, they do what they call the super spectacular, where they invite lots and lots of different writers and artists to kind of pay tribute to that character in the form of like new original one off short stories. It's an anthology, basically. And uh, DC approached me and said, Would you, I, I, I'd done some comic work. Uh, for image that they had seen and liked, to say, "Would you be interested in doing a story in the Batman Joker universe?" I was like, "Oh my god, yes, absolutely!" And my friend Greg Miller, who I co-host the kind of Funny Games Daily uh, podcast with, um, is like the biggest DC fanboy that I know. Yep. So I, th- I said, "Would you like to collaborate with us on me to make you know l- let's make sure that we get all of that like really all the kind of nerdy you know references and Easter eggs in there?" Greg was able to bring that uh, to the to the party. And we worked on it, and it's really fun. It's called "Kill the Batman." It's one of several stories uh, in the book, and um, it's because it's a one-off because it exists outside of the of the existing uh, continuity. We get to do things that you could never do yeah. in the original continuity, like kill Bruce Wayne. Like we, we we killed Bruce Wayne on page one of the comic. Whoa! Which, you know, like he's definitively dead. Um, wow! And and, uh, and 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 not just dead, but like in 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 after, after his death his true identity as Batman is revealed to the world like the very oh, first man. panel is literally Lois Lane reporting live from inside the Batcave because <laughs> like all the all the and, and, and now that Bruce Wayne's dead like there's no point keeping his secrets anymore you all guys of,
0: are not playing no we, we,
1: we yeah and and it's it's only a short story but it's really 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 fun and it's basically kind of an exploration into the idea of like what does the Joker do with now that there's no Batman around anymore
0: well, we're in the age of the internet, we alluded to this a little bit with the Snyder Cut combo and everything, but um, could could you see yourself working, you know, I think this is your first time with DC, right? You, you've never, yeah. Yeah. yeah, so could could you see yourself working on a monthly series with DC with a, a character as massive as Batman or Robin I would, or something.
1: I, I, I would love that. I already spoke to my editor at DC and said, look, I love working on this. If you ever want to do more, then you know where to find me. And I think they're going to, they really liked the Batman story that, that Greg and I did. So I think they might um, come back to us when, you know, they have the right opportunity. Um, I, I I've already, I've already kind of nudged them several times. Hey, just not for nothing. My favorite character is Superman. Just like take, do with that information what you want to do. Awesome. Um, but, you know, I love I, Superman, I, love, I love, all the, all of those characters. And the idea, same as Star Wars, the, the, the idea that I've been invited to kind of contribute even some small thing to the canon of the, you know, there are certain kind of cornerstone, you know, franchises, you know, that yeah. are kind of the pillars of our modern popular culture. Harry yes. Potter, Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, Star Trek, Marvel, DC. Yep. Um, and so to, to have gotten to contribute to Star Wars and to DC... Into the Marvel universe in my own way, like all oh, these are all again, like every time I do something like this, the ten-year-old boy inside of me is like just having the best time.
0: That's awesome. Uh, would you be nervous though? You know, with the uh, the constant, because <laughs> you are on the internet, you are a Twitter user. Yeah, would this be something that would? Uh, I don't know, give you some pause to think about all of the vitriol that might come your way? No, not,
1: but- not anymore, because I already did Star Wars. Like, once you've done yeah. that, where else are you going to go in terms of exposing yourself to, you know, angry fans? Uh, I've actually been really lucky, both through my experience on Star Wars, because it was one of the better-liked movies. For you sure. Know, the new generation of movies, you know, it seems like audiences have liked some more than others. Yeah. And I have considered myself very fortunate that we're, you know, generally seem to be towards... Uh, I think IGN did a big poll recently. Like, what do you think was the best movie of the new generation? And Rogue One like won it in a landslide. I was actually kind of shocked to see that because there's yep. other movies in in the new generation that I also think are, are really, really good. Yep. Uh, so it's very flattering to see so many people respond to the movie the way that they have. Justly and been, deserved. And I've been really, really lucky just in general. I don't know if it's deliberate or accidental, but the people that follow me on Twitter and on social media, uh, and on Twitch and on YouTube and my other the other places were invisible. Are really, really, really positive and nice, and I very I I, I block maybe one or two people a day. You yeah. Know, someone has someone has a dickhead comment. Okay, fine. That I, I wish you I wish you'd have done better with the one shot that you had because that's the only one you get. Like you are now gone forever. I have a hair trigger block. I will. You only have to even mildly irritate me and I'll block you because like life's too short. Yeah. I, I want to have. It's not that I need everyone like telling me I'm great all the time, but like I don't have any time for people who just spread negativity if you if if i like something i will tell you on twitter oh yeah minecraft minecraft dungeons really enjoying it go check it out if i don't like it i'll just keep it to myself like there's enough of that on the internet already
0: yeah uh so as a person that's multi-hyphenate like yourself and has an opportunity to create your own projects and and sort of kickstart your own dreams a little bit what do you enjoy the most out of the work that you get to do
1: I like, I like creating something out of nothing. I like creating something out of, out of whole cloth. Unfortunately, mm. in my business, that's often very difficult to do. I'm, I'm yeah. very privileged to work in these other sandboxes. You know, like working in Star Wars was a privilege. Working for DC was a privilege, excuse me. <coughs> uh, working um, in on a lot of different, like a kind of licensed and franchised properties, as I you know, Akira, Warcraft, all these things that I've done. It's, it's, it's a dream to do those things, but there's nothing quite like Working on your own stuff, you're whether it's Star Wars or DC, you're always aware of the fact that you didn't really create this. Like you're just being, you're privileged to have been invited to work in a world that someone else created. But for yeah. me, the most creative satisfaction comes from creating something out of nothing. Um, you know, because like if I if I hadn't taken the job on Rogue One, someone else would have taken it, and it wouldn't wouldn't have been the exact same movie. But it, it, there would have been a Rogue One. It would have been different, but probably just as good, if not better. But like the Book of Eli. You know my novel, Abomination, Oliver, Death Junior, the other things that I've worked on. If I don't come up with the idea, no one else does, and it doesn't exist. Yeah. And so, th- th- those are the things that I try to prioritize my my creative energies on. Now, it's not working for as other- like a work for hire on someone else's property, but trying to trying to create and, and energize like my own ideas. And in Hollywood, again, that's tricky because. Hollywood's not in the business of spending hundred million dollars on an original idea. That's they're, they're too risk averse for that. Yeah. And so I increasingly, am trying to find ways. I just want to tell stories and get them in front of an audience and the medium is almost secondary. So if I have an idea for something that I think is probably too, too difficult um, a sell commercially, like, you know, like, Oh, this would be at least $150 million giant robots and space battles and stuff. And it's just something I made up even with the profile I have as a writer. Like, no, like, unless you're Christopher Nolan, no one's spending those kind of money, that, that kind of money on original ideas. Right. Um, and so I'll find other ways to do it. Like, the, like the, the Oliver Twist story that I wanted to do, no one was going to make that as a movie. So I wrote it as a comic book instead. And the comic book got published and found an audience. And I'm happy with that. I had a medieval monster thing that I wanted to do called Abomination. I originally thought about it as a movie. I thought no one's going to make this. Wrote it as a novel instead. And that novel found an audience, and that's been successful. And and so I'm gratified. And, of course, the irony is once you create something as a novel or a comic book, then Hollywood starts coming and saying to you, oh, (laughs) we should make this as a movie. I'm like, where were you five years ago when I wanted to make it as a movie? Now it's a comic book you're interested. But as soon as it becomes a piece of underlying IP, they can understand the business model. But making original things is very difficult for Hollywood to understand that.
0: I see sometimes the the frustration of uh, Hollywood seeps out of you. you know, every once in a while, there's a tweet or a Facebook message of uh, this business can be rough. And Mouse Guard was something that I know you were very passionate about and wanted to bring out there. And that got, I don't know if it's back alive. I don't know what happened there. But uh, how do you, how do you persevere through that? How do you, you know, and I'm sure there's lots of people dealing with lots of challenges right now. But how do you personally kind of get through something that you have really high hopes for just not working out?
1: No, it's, it's heartbreaking because the only, the only way, and it goes back to what you said earlier, but, oh, you're living the dream, but then I was about to say something, but then you kind of you said, but I know it's not always a dream. And I was like, damn right. It's not. It's often really, really hard. And yeah, I'm, every day I'm so, consider myself so lucky and so privileged that I get to do this for a living instead of like, you know, digging holes in the road or like actual real work that people do for a living, like backbreaking yeah. labor. Like I just get yes. to sit around having ideas. Not to say that's easy, but like it's certainly easier than a lot of work that like real working people do, and I'm very grateful for that. Having said that, the, the real hardship is, is less physical and more emotional. The only way to do this work that I do, the only way to engage in it is to, is to give a shit. You have to care about what you do for a living. And yeah. every, time, every time you care, you make yourself emotionally vulnerable. Every time you fall in love, you risk having your heart broken. So when I fell in love with something like Mouse Guard, and wrote a script that I thought was really, really good, and everybody liked. And then two weeks from production, it gets, it gets shut down for reasons that don't have anything to do with the creative, but simply because Disney bought Fox and decided that it didn't fit into their new, you know, uh, release schedule. That's, that's heartbreaking. And Wes, who directed it, $40 million of pre-production. Andy Serkis, wow. Idris Elba, um, you know, sets built, costumes built, stages booked, two weeks to go, we're making this movie, uh, and then suddenly you get the rug pulled out from under you. It's agonizing and you go, you seriously go through a lot of the the same emotions that you go through. Like when you go through a really, really bad breakup, you know, you're inconsolable, you're heartbroken. Like, was it me? Was it something I did? Like you you, you kind of get very, you know, all this self doubt and I've, and you get angry too. Like I've got really, really enraged and like just felt like this close to quitting the business uh, a couple of times, I think about three times now. I've mm. said I'm never writing another big studio movie again, and like, and I'm, and I'm writing a big studio movie right now. So you know, my, my words mean nothing, basically.
0: <laughs> so, what is the secret for you? Is it is it a video game? Is it is it a, you know having a a drink with another writer? Is it your wife, your kid? What do you what it's do just, you turn it, to? It,
1: it's just time and introspection, and I, I, after a while, you begin to realize that it's not your fault. That often, I, I don't know whether or not that makes it any better or worse when it's your fault at least you can learn something from it and take something from it well i'll try to do better next time yeah. when it's not your fault and you realize that you know we're all you know little clay figures down on the chessboard and like the bob Igers and the jeff bezos of the world are like the gods of mount olympus kind of playing with us for sport <laughs> right. I'll destroy this person what happens next just for fun once you realize that that's our reality um that we live in a world of kind of mortals and immortals in this business and we're very and someone like me is very mortal well
0: life in general yeah yeah, i got that i got that even talking with uh like video game executives that were in charge of a a thousand people it's like they're playing stims
1: we're all just playthings to the gods and um but again the fact that we care means that we can never stop. like you you i don't care Fuck it, I'm done. I don't care anymore. But like the next morning, you wake up. I, oh, I still, I still actually do kind of care. Like <laughs> I still want to create something. Because what else? Again, what else am I going to do? Go, go get a real job. Come on.
0: Yeah, yeah. Who do you want as? Uh, I know you've got Sting and you've got uh, Shaggy coming on uh, Animal Talk. Yeah, that's right. Crazy. That's fantastic. Shaggy, Shaggy
1: on June first. Uh, we got Sting on June eighth. That's um, amazing. And uh, we've got some other big guests that we're going to be announcing. Uh, very soon. I think on Monday, we're going to announce uh, the, the other guests that will be on the show with Sting. And listen, it's, 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 it's been fun to have the big guests. You know, we're talking to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez about coming on in July. That's going to be big as well. That's um, But, you know, I, I, I don't ever want the show to become just about like the craven pursuit of who's the biggest and best guest. Right. That we can get. It's like, it, to me, it's always, I, I want the show just to continue to be what it was when it started, which is like me just hanging out with my friends and people who I think are cool. And sometimes a part of what might make you cool is the fact that you're famous for doing something cool. But yeah. often, I, I guarantee you, like, as the show continues, like, yeah, 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 you'll see Sting, you'll see these big names, but you're also going to see someone that I guarantee you, I guarantee you, you've never heard of, but they're right. just someone that I thought was cool. And That's I, wa- awesome. I want to try and keep that, keep that authenticity going as, as the show continues.
0: When I hear you, I hear you, conversing with Elvis Costello and I don't know if you're a fan of his but there's a, I I I I don't I just there's a a timber in your voice a resonance in your voice that I just would like to see the two of you in Animal Crossing
1: I don't have my glasses here right now but if I talking my glasses on, I would other. really look like Elvis Costello
0: <laughs> <laughs> Are you, are you a fan of his or did I offend you cuz cuz I love Elvis The funny thing is pe-
1: pe- when, when I had hair people used to say I looked like him but yeah. when, I, when if I grow my hair back and put my glasses on, I actually do look a little bit like Elvis Costello. That's awesome. I'm a big fan of um, Elvis Costello.
0: Well, we got to get him on animal talking. That was complicated be great.
1: shadows. That's my favorite Elvis Costello song.
0: i I love the uh, uh, tramp that dirt down. I was a, a total classic Elvis Costello He oh, lives yeah. in Vancouver now. does he really? Yes, he does. He's married to. Uh, Oh, the jazz shant, Diana Krall. He's married to Diana Krall.
1: I got to get him on the show. You know, Sting was on, one of the things I want to talk to Sting about when he comes on the show is he was on the Larry Sanders show, if you remember that back in the day. And Elvis Costello was as well. So maybe I can try and get all the old Larry Sanders guests to appear on my show.
0: Well, Sting is huge fans with Elvis Costello, but uh, my one of, I love Elvis Costello, but I uh, was on the same plane as him once. And we were getting off the airport and uh, off the plane out of the airport in Vancouver and he dropped his wallet and I picked up his wallet and I went, uh, Mr. Elvis Costello, here is your wallet. <laughs> and he said, oh, thank you. And I said, can I get a photo? And I, I got a I got a profile pic out of it. But uh, right, he, he was right. great. And he's That's amazing right. in concert. And uh, I can only imagine what he would think of Animal Crossing. I'll put I'll put I'll put him on the list. Let's see if we can get him. <laughs> Let's see if we can you- get him. Who do you want? Who 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 do you look up to, and who who would you like to see? Tom Cruise, Christopher McQuarrie, like who who who's a who's a favorite of yours?
1: See again, like I I think they're both interesting people. I would take Christopher McQuarrie over Tom Cruise. Me too. Tom Cruise is the biggest star, but I feel like I could have a more interesting conversation with Macquarie. But like, like Macquarie is a friend of mine. I talk to him, you know, fairly uh, 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 often. Um, And, you know, I've picked his brains about screenwriting. Like he's way, way better than me, but like technically in the same business. Um, I I think I would ever really, I I, want to, I want to continue to have people uh, on the show who come from my areas of interest, which is to say film, television, video games, internet nerd culture. Uh, you know we we're, we're going to continue to have like t- uh, twitch streamers and youtubers and video game type people uh on the show um it's again the the the, the only the only criteria is like do i think they're interesting and yes. that and that you know that can be a very wide net so again it's not about like Everyone wants to get Brie Larson and Chrissy Teigen on the show because they play Animal Crossing. I get it 10 times a day. You should get Brie Larson. She just tweeted about Animal Crossing. Yeah. Yes, I know. Trust me, I know because everyone tells me 50 times a day. <laughs> they're, trust me, they're welcome on the show anytime. I'm just not, I'm not running around like trying to get them.
0: Like um, everybody else is right like, now.
1: Like, yeah, everyone else is
0: doing it for me. Dude, get Doug Lyman on the show. That guy's amazing. He's fascinating and an incredible career. And he Fil- made yeah. Edge of Tomorrow, right? Fil- so Fil- film-
1: Filmmakers are always, uh, always welcome.
0: Yeah, that would be awesome. All right. Well, can you tell us what you're working on? No. I thought not.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I wish I I could. I'm working on a bunch of stuff right now, and I'm actually hopefully going to be in a position to announce some of it uh, very soon. Uh, That's another problem. Like that Batman comic, Greg and I did that months ago. Yeah. I wasn't able to, I wasn't allowed to tell anybody until DC finally lifted the embargo, like just a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Star Wars, I was working on it for the better part of a year before I was allowed to tell anyone. That's Sometimes one, one of the things you have to learn to do in this business is be a good keeper of secrets. Because if I go around running my mouth, no one's ever going to let, no let me sign an NDA again. So yes. I, ha- I, I have to be very um, uh, circumspect in terms of what I talk about before it's officially announced
0: that must be so crazy at odds with your years of reporting on all of this stuff right Right. because you know you know the value of a nice little morsel of information yeah i think that star wars coming back was announced on halloween if i'm not mistaken
1: maybe it was around i you know it's all a blur to me now it may may have been
0: you know probably wasn't on halloween because we were in we were shooting our show in costume i was luke Scott Jones, my co-host, was Han Solo. Okay. And my other co-host, Brianna, was Princess Leia, and we were in Star Wars costumes for our Halloween show, reporting that Star Wars was coming back. Yeah, it, that's that's
1: when it would have been. Yeah.
0: But we had no idea, and it just sort of happened. It was totally coincidence, and and what same are,
1: same for me too. I didn't hear any rumblings. I I learned it when everyone else did when they when they first announced it. Yeah.
0: What are you proudest of with what you? added to the story of Rogue One?
1: I mean, just, I mean, just in general, I'm very proud of the fact that I was part of something that has been so well received. The, the nicest compliment that I got, I went to a friend's, like a private screening where people knew who I was because I had introduced the movie. And so they were kind of finding me after the film and coming up and saying, you know, what they liked about the movie or whatever. And there was a sweet like old lady who came up to me and she was like really emotionally affected. You could tell like she was kind of like there's misting up a little bit. And she said, I was in line when I was a young, a young woman, um, May 25th, 1977, I saw the original Star Wars on opening day. And she said, this movie made me feel like it was that day again. And wow. I was like, oh my God. And it was like, so like, I, I started choking up. Um, in, in, like, in terms of, like, my, I, I don't usually like breaking it down, but this has already been talked about in books and stuff, so it's fine. Uh, but, like, the, my, my, the two things that I'm, like, most kind of, like, smug about, I guess, would be the floor in the Death Star. I was the one that came up with the idea, like, what if it was put there deliberately? Um, and Vader's castle, the whole, the whole idea that he had this, this, this place, this fortress on Mustafar where he went to kind of chill out and kind of recharge his batteries, uh, so to speak. Um, I mean, there's I, I could, you know, I, 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 I just did like a whole uh, live commentary with Chris White's one of my co-writers on the movie where we went through it like scene by scene and talked about who did what. Uh, but like th- 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 those specifically were like the two things that I thought were pretty cool.
0: That's awesome. Well, uh, everybody, you can uh, keep up with Gary right now on the internet with uh, Animal Talking. There's full episodes for you to check out. There's the live show that's happening and uh, some big guests are uh, all lining up for uh, its return in June.
1: Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at Gary Witter. That's also the Twitch channel. And the one thing we're really trying to do right now is I'm really trying to grow the YouTube channel because that's where all the Animal Talking episodes and clips and highlights are archived. YouTube, YouTube.com slash GWitter, G-W-H-I-T-T-A. Go there. Uh, don't forget to like and subscribe. I'm a YouTuber now, so I have to say these things. So do uh, I. Hammer that bell to get your notifications. Uh, tr- we-, we had this massive, like this- my YouTube channel used to just host my sad PUBG clips. Yeah. Nobody would want to watch. Like 50 <laughs> people would watch them. Uh, and in the last month since we started putting Animal Talking on there, we got 12,000 subscribers to the site in just a few weeks. So it's growing very quickly, but that's the, that's the kind of my, my little project right now is kind of learning how to grow the YouTube site and get more people to come discover it. So yeah, youtube.com slash go, go sub to the channel.
0: That's awesome. Gary, thank you so much. Uh, thank you all for watching. We'll uh, have a brand new VIX basement for you next week. And until then you guys play forever.